All right, well, this, this morning I'm combining two questions because they're related. I actually tried to combine three different questions because they were all related, but then it became way too long. So I'm going to defer the sermon about eschatology and amillennialism, which I'm eager to, to preach on. It's a doctrine that I love, uh, but I couldn't fit it in today. And so today we're going to be um, talking about Two different people actually wrote me with these tough topic questions about cremation and just asking me quite simply um, whether or not cremation is okay, uh, which sounds like an awfully short sermon, does it not? Um, but, uh, but we want to look at the Bible and see if and what the Bible has to say about that. So that'll be the first question we try to answer today about cremation. And then the second one, someone sent me an email asking about the intermediate state. Uh, the intermediate state, for those of you who are not familiar with that phrase, is um, that's the state that we find ourselves in after we die, but before Christ returns and raises us to new life with resurrection bodies, that, that time in between there is called the intermediate state. Not everyone will experience that because some people will be alive when he returns, but for those of us who die before he returns, there is that intermediate state. And some people wonder, well, what is that like? What is that all about? How should we think about that? And so in one way or another, both of those questions are, are they're asking really, the, really ultimately the question, the topic that they're getting at is, what happens to us when we die? Right? Which is an important, basic question that, that we all want to know. What happens to us? What exactly happens to us when we die? Um, obviously, no one can answer that question with first-hand experience. No one here, anyways. I mean, if Lazarus was here, he could tell us, but he's not. Nobody here has first-hand experience of what that's like. What we do have, though, is God's infallible Word, right? And He has given it to us to instruct and to comfort and to encourage. And so we'll look at the Scriptures have to say about these topics. We're going to look at a number of Scriptures, but I'm going to start with this one from the Gospel of Luke. It ha this, this passage has nothing to do with cremation, okay? but, but uh, I want to read it and then we'll come back to it uh, towards the end of the sermon. Luke in 23 and starting in verse 39. Luke 23 starting in verse 39. I'll read it and then we can pray together says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Father, you've given us your word and it's a gracious gift and we receive it with glad and joyful hearts. And I know that part of the reason we have your word is to instruct us so that we can know and understand that which is true. But I also know that you've given it to us not just to instruct, but to encourage and comfort. And I recognize that there are limitations to our intellects. I'm very aware of my own intellectual limitations. 
And so I, 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 I pray, Lord, I, we're talking about things that we do not know, that we have not experienced. We're on the other side of these experiences. And it's hard for us to understand or imagine what it is actually like to pass through the veil and to enter into your presence. I feel like we're, in some ways, unborn children who are trying to imagine and guess what it might be like to be born and live in the world. And it's hard to know until you know. It's hard to know until you're there. And so I recognize that, but I also know that your word has some things to say about this. And the reason it does is to give us hope and courage and comfort now. And so I'm asking for that. Would you use this time this morning to encourage and comfort our hearts to bring hope? And to bring joy. In Christ's name. Amen. Oh, I forgot my water. All right, well, the question about cremation is uh, tricky for a couple of reasons. One reason that it's tricky is because uh, this is not, for a lot of people, this is not a theoretical question that we sit around and talk about uh, over coffee, but it is a very real and personal question. It's a question that affects people's lives. It's a question that people have already made decisions and acted on that are not undoable or that they're thinking about making decisions. And so it's not theory. It's very, very personal. And that makes it, could, can be tricky to talk about. Uh, the other reason that it's a complicated question is because the Bible doesn't say anything explicitly about this. Let's make that clear. There's no cremation verse that we can look up. Okay? Also, church history, if we want help from church history, it also doesn't give us a clear answer because different Christians in different denominations in different parts of the world have held different views about cremation. In the very early days of Christianity, when Christians were being persecuted by the Roman Empire, in general, Christians did not practice cremation. Partly, the reason that they did not was because at the time, in that culture, Pagans burned their dead. That was part of a pagan ritual to burn the dead. And they wanted to distance themselves from that practice. So they refused to do that. But also partly they didn't engage in the practice of cremation because it was a way for them to recognize that the physical body is a precious gift from God and it ought to be treated with respect. Now we'll come back to that in a minute because there's more to be said about that. But that was the thinking at the time. In, in, in early Rome, uh, you, you've probably heard of the catechisms, heard of the, not the catechisms, you've heard of the catacombs, uh, or maybe you've been there and visited the catacombs in Rome. Basically, these are graves where the persecuted church hid bodies of those who had died, right? And I, about 20 years ago, I visited and had the privilege of walking through these catacombs, and it's unbelievable. I mean, you'd get lost for sure if you didn't have a guide. It's just miles and miles of dark interlocking tunnels. The walls are, they're like shelves. They're like, it's, it's kind of like bunk beds where bodies were laid to rest. And it's just miles and miles of that. And every now and then you come to an opening, you come kind of out of one of these tunnels uh, 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 of where the bodies were laid and you come into 
an opening that feels like just sort of a hollowed out cavern. Um, and it was there in these spots that they held their funerals and they held secret um, private worship services down there. Uh, the acoustics are incredible when you're down there. And so basically, that was the position of the early church. They, they did not practice cremation. In fact, they frowned upon it. But as the centuries progressed and as Christianity spread, the general view on cremation changed. Christianity began to be practiced, as it spread, it began to be practiced in places where it was not the practice of pagans to burn their dead. And so there was not that cultural baggage associated with cremation. And since the Bible doesn't say anything explicitly about it, many Christians decided that it was perfectly acceptable to practice cremation. Our own denomination, the CRC, does not take an official stance on this issue. I've been told, I, as you know, I've only been a part of the CRC for seven years now, but I've been told by people who know better and have been around longer that cremation has not been a common option within the CRC. It has not been something that people have frequently practiced in the past in the CRC. But I've also been told, as I've talked to people and asked about the practice in the CRC, that it's becoming more and more accepted and commonly practiced. So what we need to do here is see if there are any biblical principles that we can apply to this question. That's the important thing, right? What does the Bible say? Now again, I've already said it doesn't say anything explicitly, but are there principles that we could apply to this question? As we do that, I want to say that why we reach our conclusion is sometimes just as important as the conclusions that we reach, right? And so if a Christian chooses cremation, based on the view that, well, we're all going to heaven anyways, and, and so the body doesn't really matter, I think that's bad theology. In fact, I think that that borders on the heresy of Gnosticism that teaches that only the spiritual world is important and the material world is bad. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God created the world, the material world, the physical world, and it was good. He created Adam and Eve physically, giving them bodies, and they were very good. The physical world has fallen, yes, but it will be redeemed, and it is good. The body, the material physical body, does matter. It does matter. And this is why we talk about the resurrection of the body. And burial of a deceased body can be a powerful way of proclaiming our resurrection hope, our confident belief that our bodies will one day be raised. And typically, when you look at the Bible, that is the practice that you find. When you look at the Bible and the way that burial is handled, it's typically traditional burial. The first biblical account of burial is found in Genesis 23. That's when Sarah died, Abraham's wife. Abraham, at the time, you remember the story, he didn't own a burial place, and so he bought a cave from a Hittite, uh, and he used that cave as the burial place for Sarah's body. When Abraham died, he was buried in the very same cave. When Moses died, you remember God himself buried Moses and buried him in a grave site that was never revealed. Uh, when King David died, he was buried in the city of David. The burial of Jesus, quite possibly, well, I would say definitely the, the most well-known description of a traditional burial, right? Um, 
Joseph of Arimathea burying Jesus in his grave. The, the, the burial of Jesus is so significant that it is one of the uh, important points that we recite and confess when we uh, recite the Apostles' Creed. He was buried. He was buried. After Herod murdered John the Baptist, we're told his disciples buried his body. When Stephen, remember when Stephen was stoned in the book of Acts, we're told that his friends came and got the body and buried the body. Um, So that's some of the biblical data. And the biblical data we find regarding uh, after someone dies, what to do with the body is that typically what happened was that body was buried. Buried. But just because cremation isn't practiced in the Bible does not mean that it's prohibited. It's definitely possible to surround cremation with the same public affirmation, the same celebration and hope of the resurrection. One of the first things that we consider, one of the first words that pops to mind when we think about either burial or cremation is a matter of respect, respect, right? Burial, it's thought that burial shows respect for the deceased, whereas it's sometimes pointed out by people who oppose cremation, it's pointed out that, well, the use of fire, that that might actually be conveying an image of destruction or disrespect or even maybe God's judgment. We don't, we don't want that. But, but before we go there, we should think about that. Fire sometimes in the Bible is used to convey the judgment of God, but fire is also sometimes in the Bible used to convey the presence of God, the blessing of God. Think of the burning bush, right? Out of which God called Moses to be his servant. Think of the pillar of fire that led Israel through the desert. Think of the tongues of fire that descended and rested on the apostles' heads on the day of Pentecost, right? So it's true that the body God gives us must be respected, right? The physical world is precious. It's a gift from God. Our bodies are a gift from God. But cremation, when done with reverence for our Creator, can definitely be done in a respectful way that honors the deceased. And the reality is, even an embalmed body buried in a vault decomposes within a relatively short period of time. And creation simply hastens that process That's going to happen anyways. The ashes that remain after cremation can be dealt with in a respectful way by the surviving loved ones. What I've noticed lately is that a lot of people are making the decision for cremation based on very practical financial considerations. I mean, that's the reality. Traditional burial can be a financial burden and hardship for some families, it, it, it costs thousands and thousands of dollars, and cremation is sometimes chosen because it alleviates some of that expense. That was definitely uh, my grandfather's uh, rationale for choosing cremation. That was the reason. Uh, just, you don't know him, you didn't know him, so let me just give you an idea of what kind of man he was. When he discovered that he had terminal liver cancer uh, and not long to live, he, he started praying that he would make it through April so that he would have time to file his tax returns before he died <laughs> because he, wa- he wanted to get a full return for his wife before, before he died. That's the kind of guy he was. He was not a wealthy man. He was a science teacher, uh, but he was extremely frugal. 
And so once he came to the conclusion that cremation is not prohibited by the Bible, and once he realized that cremation is cheaper, <laughs> he went with that for financial reasons. And I've heard other people make similar decisions. Listen, it's true that our bodies will be raised. Our bodies will be raised. Our bodies will be redeemed. We will be given resurrection bodies. But we should not assume that because that's the, that, that's the way the Bible talks about the future state, that we are required to bury the bodies or preserve the bodies or protect the bodies in order to provide some sort of identifiable grave so that God can find that person and raise him up and give him a resurrection body. God does not have that problem. Most bodies that have been buried throughout history have decomposed, and no remains can be identified by anybody at this point. Many bodies are destroyed by death. Many people are buried in unmarked graves. None of these things are problems for God. Right? It's important to remember that God does not need material with which to work in order to provide us with resurrection bodies. He can figure it out. He can sort it out. It's not a problem for him. The truth is, we don't really know what's involved when God gives someone a resurrection glorified body. What we know is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And when he was raised from the dead, he was given a resurrection body, a resurrected body. And we're told, and this is in 1 Corinthians 15, that just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, that's Adam, so too we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven, that's Jesus. Right? Which means just as, just as we have been given earthly bodies, these, these tents that we're all wearing right now, these bodies that we've been given, right? We all have one. Well, we're promised in 1 Corinthians 15 that those of us who are in Christ, just as sure as you have that tent of a body right now, you will have one day a resurrection body, one that won't get old and won't get sick. That is the promise that we have. And so here is my conclusion on cremation. Grief Right? When we're talking about cremation and traditional burial, you cannot talk about those things without thinking about grief. Grief is a difficult and personal process. We each deal with it in different ways. Whether burial or cremation is the better option for a loved one or for ourselves should be left to personal decision. If traditional burial resonates with you, that's great. If traditional burial provides resolution and the hope of resurrection, that's great. Go with that. Go with that. But also, respect the fact that others may feel differently, and cremation might be just as meaningful and hopeful to them. Whichever choice we make, the most important point is that disciples of Jesus Christ, all of us, no matter where we end up when we die, all of us can look ahead with confidence to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That is the point. All right. Now we come to our second question. Where do we go when we die? The moment we die, what happens? So far we've been talking about the physical part of us, right? Our body. But you are far more than just a body. You have a body, but you are more than a body. So what happens to your soul when you die? Where does that soul go? What does it do while it awaits the return of the king? 
the intermediate state, that time between death and resurrection. Some have held that during this time we are unconscious. We, we, we just don't know what's going on. Some, some even have speculated that we go out of existence for that span and then we, then we pop back into existence. Uh, the, the, the idea that we go unconscious during this time is sometimes referred to as soul sleep. It's the idea that when you die, basically at the moment of your death, your soul takes a nap and it wakes up when Christ returns. And so you die, and then the next thing you know, it's the second coming, and you're given a resurrection body. That's referred to as soul sleep. I don't think that view holds up under biblical scrutiny, and I'm going to try to tell you and show you why, and try to see what actually does happen. I believe that the biblical evidence is that our soul continues on after death, and that we you and I will remain conscious, conscious, I always say that word wrong, we will remain conscious in the intermediate state while awaiting our final destiny of our resurrected existence in the new heavens and the new earth. That is what I believe. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians 1 and verse 23? You remember in that passage, he was he was ruminating on his own death and his life and to be or not to be, I don't know which to choose, uh, and he spoke of having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Do you remember that? When he's trying to decide whether he'd rather live or die. He says that his desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Well, notice, first of all, that Paul speaks of death as a departure, but also an arrival, right? It's not a departure into a temporary nothingness or into unconsciousness or into a long sleep, but it's a, it, it's a departure to go and be with Christ. If, if, if we're with Christ when we die, then we continue existing. Somehow, in some state, even if it's hard to imagine what, what it means for a soul to exist without a body, that is what the Bible teaches. It's, and, and, even though it's hard to wrap our minds around that, it's not totally impossible, right? There are some parallel things, right? There are things in this world that are real but not visible, which is what I'm suggesting is a soul is real. It's real, but it's not visible, right? The air we're all breathing right now that's keeping us alive at this moment, you can't see it, but it's real. The love that we feel between us right now, you can't see it, but it's real, there are things that are real but not visible, and apparently souls are like that too. And second, notice that Paul speaks of this state as being very much better than this present state in this life. It would hard, it's hard for me to imagine that Paul would say that if when we die we just go to sleep and go unconscious. Particularly when we consider that Paul's passion was to know Christ, it would seem that the reason for him, that the state beyond death is better than this present life. And it's not like he hated this life. He was a joyful man. But he said, it's even better to depart and be with Christ. And the reason is, it's because we're, we're with Christ when we die. And we're aware of it, that we're with Christ. If we were suddenly unconscious at death until the resurrection, wouldn't it be better to remain in this life? Because at least then we have our, the fellowship with Christ that we experience in this life. 
Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 5 that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And we should therefore, or he said that he would therefore prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. It's significant that he speaks of the possibility of being absent from the body, right? Somehow there's a way to exist, to still be existing and conscious, but absent from the body, right? Which suggests that we do have souls that continue existing after the body dies. And second, notice again that he speaks of this state as his preference, which indicates not only do we continue existing between death and the resurrection, but we are aware of our existence, And now we come to the case of the thief on the cross that I read earlier to start the sermon. Uh, Remember what Jesus says to him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I once um, had a discussion with with a person who was a Jehovah's Witness, and he pulled out his Bible uh, to show me what his, how his Bible translated that verse. And it had the same words, but different punctuation. Are you familiar with this argument? It, 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 the punctuation ha- has it say, Truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. <laughs> you get the difference? <laughs> Giving the impression that the today is that I'm saying it today, <laughs> and one day you're going to be with me in paradise. Uh, well, Unfortunately for that translation, the context, the grammatical context makes that impossible. Uh, The today clearly refers to when the thief on the cross will be with Jesus in paradise. Jesus is responding to his request in the previous verse, right? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response is, today you will be with me in paradise. That that can only be taken to mean not, not only will I remember you when I come into my kingdom, but already today. You will be with me there. Finally, a, 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 another passage that speaks to this is in Revelation 6. And in that, Revelation, as you know, is a complicated book all around. But in, in that chapter, John looks underneath the altar And what he says he sees underneath the altar is the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God. All right, so he's seeing the souls of the martyrs. How he's seeing souls, I don't know. (laughs) Says he is. And these individuals are clearly not in a state of soul sleep because in the next verse, they're crying out, how long, O Lord? Now again, I, I don't know what to picture But I know not to picture sleeping souls because they're crying out, How long, O Lord? I find those biblical passages about the intermediate state as compelling evidence that when we die, our souls are separated from our bodies. And for all of those who are united with Christ by faith in his death and in his resurrection, their souls immediately, immediately appear in his presence in a place of joyful, worshipful bliss. It is a blessed state that we exist in until Christ returns and at that point raises us to new life with resurrection bodies that will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth. All right. In closing, we just need to answer one final question. 
which is the so what question. In one way or another, every sermon needs to answer that question. So what? Why does this matter? How does believing this affect me today? What is the application? One final passage is going to help us answer this. In fact, it'll, it'll pretty much answer it for us. And so I'll read it. It's, if you want to look it up and read along with me, uh, it's 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. This is the word of the Lord, and this is the best thing you're going to hear today. <laughs> I promise. It says this. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, this tent, this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. You feel that? Are you burdened? Are you groaning? I am. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. I don't want to be stripped naked. I want to be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, and he's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You have a guarantee of this. It's the Holy Spirit in you. So we are always of good courage. There's the application. So we are always of good courage. Now, in this life, we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. There's another application. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is our hope. This is our source of courage. We are of good courage now in this life. He says it twice. We don't walk through life under the tyranny of the fear of death. We know death is an enemy, but we don't walk under the fear of death. But we believe by the testimony of the Spirit that has been given to us and provides our guarantee that there is life beyond life. There's life after life. And while this life is good and should be marked by joy for the believer during our journey here, nonetheless, the destination is even better. For the believer, death is an upgrade. So I'll, I'll close with one illustration and then I'm done. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a silly illustration. Sometimes illustrations run the risk of making something big and beautiful and profound seem petty. That's obviously not my desire, but I think it's a, it's a small little parallel. It's a pebble compared to a boulder, but it makes the point. So here's the plan. This summer in August... I'm going to be driving to Milwaukee with my son, Elliot. We are going to take our time. We're going so that we can bring all the Lois's um, stuff for school and drop it off there at her dorm. We're going to take our time going. Uh, we're going to enjoy the journey. We're going to camp. We're going to bring a tent. We're going to camp, and it'll be great. 
but a big part of my anticipation. In fact, the whole reason that we're making the trip is because at the end of the journey is my mom's cooking and my parents' home and my soft, warm bed. Tents are fun. <laughs> Sleeping bags are fun. Hot dogs on a campfire are fine. But the destination where we're heading to this summer is way, way better. That is how this doctrine can shape the way that we live today. We are of good courage today. And we enjoy the journey today because we know that one day we will die. And that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And as good as the journey is, the destination is infinitely better. That's the application. Let's pray. Holy Father, deep waters this morning for sure. And yet where your Bible speaks, we must listen. And so, Lord, I pray that the effect of this sermon, it's a lot of words and a lot of ideas that I just spoke, but I pray that the effect of that would not be confusion or discouragement or, or even arguing or debating, but the effect would be comfort, courage, and hope. I believe with all my heart that it's your desire to impart those things to us. That's why you've given us your spirit as a guarantee. And so I pray that we could hold on to those things. I pray for those who have lost loved ones, and I think it's safe to say that pretty much everyone in this room at one time or another, I pray that we would find hope and comfort and courage by these promises that you have given. That to leave the body, to depart this world, is to be present with Christ. And I pray for those of us who think about our own mortality and maybe think about that with some anxiety or trepidation, that you would use these truths to bring comfort and courage and hope. To know that the journey is good, but the destination is infinitely better. And I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.